My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Bethel, and um, I'm glad to be with you this morning. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here. If you're online, oh, we're glad you're online with us. And if you've got your Bibles, go to the uh, letter to the Colossians uh, in the uh, New Testament. It's um, one of the prison letters. Paul wrote this. Uh, to the church in Colossae, and uh, we've been looking at it for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to be, uh, we're starting chapter two this morning, we're going to get into it, but to begin, I want to tell you about a, a guy, a 17th century theologian, uh, his name's John Owen, and um, probably the way to describe John Owen is that John Owen had a difficult life. He was um, easily the most prolific author, uh, theologian anyway, of, uh, of the 17th century. He was born in 1616, died in 1683, lived through the deaths of his first wife and all of his children, several of whom died in, uh, in, in childhood. He supported his last surviving daughter, when her marriage broke down. He uh, contributed to a political revolution and watched it fall. He saw the monarchy restored in, in England and wreak a terrible revenge um, yeah, around London and, and all the persecution that took place. For 20 years, he would have seen the decapitated heads of his friends on display around the city. He died, uh, the year that he died, he feared that the dissenting churches had largely abandoned the doctrine of the Trinity and justification by grace alone and through faith alone and Christ alone, the things he had given his life to, to, to writing. And then when Charles II uh, is replaced by uh, James, King James, uh, he believed that the English Reformation was over. One of the very difficult parts of his life was um, he was a respected theologian and was known in his own time, which was a big deal in the 17th century, to be known around the world in your own time. And people saw him as the, as the you know, kind of the, the father of theology during that day, but he would travel out um, into the rural countryside on Sundays whenever he could to go listen to a contemporary of his named John Bunyan. Uh, you know Bunyan because he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And one of Owen, the story is that uh, Bunyan was put into jail because uh, he was preaching outside of the, uh, the, the church that was um, uh, sanctioned. And Owen spent his, a lot of time trying to get him out of jail and, and really grieved that he wasn't able to have any influence to get Bunyan out of jail. We're thankful that he didn't because that's when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Um, but that he, he um, never was able to do that. He, here's the thing, though. John Owen believed, and he wrote, and wrote, and wrote, and wrote in the midst of tragedy and heartache, in struggle, in discouragement, he wrote about the Christian life and believed that the whole goal of life was to know God and the whole goal of knowing God was to grow in Him. 
He said it this way, as if I have observed anything by experience, it's this. A man may take the measure of his growth and decay in grace according to his thoughts and meditations upon the person of Christ and the glory of Christ's kingdom and his love. In many ways, John Owen's life was very much like the Apostle Paul's life. Who knew a lot of suffering and heartache and struggle and um, labored in the ministry his entire uh, life. And, and we have these letters that Paul wrote to the churches where he, he pours his, his life out to those who are his readers. And, and what we're looking at today is a very personal uh, uh, note from Paul to this church. And what he wants him to know, he wants him to know more than anything that the way in which God works at growing mature Christians, he wants them to know this is how God works at growing up and maturing Christians. Well, last week, um, Chad preached from the end of chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. It is a great sermon. If you weren't here, do yourself a favor. Get online and listen to that sermon. And so last week, here's what we learned from the Apostle Paul, is, is the way in which the gospel is doing this remarkable work throughout the entire world, uh, the, the, the secret plan, which isn't a secret anymore. He's doing it through servants of the gospel. And Christ, he says, is going to be proclaimed and is being proclaimed in the nations of the world. And Christ in the nations of the world is the hope of the world, the, the hope of glory. And so, this morning, what we're looking at in uh, chapter 2, uh, we're going to look at the first five verses. Um, he's going to take that general truth that we looked at last week, and he's going he's to bring it down, and he's going to apply it to the particular hearers of this letter. And we'll see that he's actually applying it to us as well. And, and they're reading this letter. So they're gathered uh, there in, in Colossae, probably in Philemon's house, uh, listening to Tychicus read the letter that he brought from Rome by the hand of Paul. And if you would, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, read with me or follow along as I read the first five verses. Here's what it says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, 
rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you would you'd help us this morning to hear your word and to see um, to see this morning your plan, how, how you cause us to grow, how you lead us to maturity in your son Jesus. And so, Father, we're, we're desperate to know that, and so help us to see it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, so you, you hear it, it's the earnestness of, of uh, Paul's uh, a letter here. It's an, uh, the, the intensity of it comes to a head at this point. He says, I, I, I want you to know, he says, and I have no doubt Paul wants him to know everything that he's written, um, and that's why he wrote it, but perhaps th- there's this importance that could easily be missed. He underlines this point. I, I really, I really, really want you to know this, and, and what he wants him to know is his great struggle in serving the gospel, and who it's all been for, what it's all been for. And it's worth asking why he so earnestly wants them to know this. I mean, it's easy to think about situations where the desire would be less than worthy. You, you, you know, I mean, many Christians today, you, you know, especially Christians leaders, you, you know, you ask them how they're doing, and they're, they can't wait to tell you how, how busy they are, or how tired they are. You know, they never miss the chance to do that. You see, if you or I were saying, listen, I, I want you to know, uh, I want you to know how great a struggle, what would our motive be? Re- really, what would our motive be? Well, Paul's motive here isn't, I don't think, to attract sympathy. You know, it, this is why he's worked so hard. Or he wants to appeal, uh, you know, appear more committed than, uh, than others by talking about how hard he works. I don't think that's what's going on. Neither is he trying to set up a model for Christian ministry. Uh, that's not his point here. He, he'll make points like that in other places, but that's not his point here. It's actually more important than any of those things. Paul wants his readers to appreciate. He, he wants the church, these believers, to appreciate the way in which God is in fact working to bring them to maturity in their Christian faith. I, I, I want you to know, and it'll be for your own good. See, one of the things that happens on Sunday mornings around here is that um, when we study through a, a book of the Bible, we, we break up the text. We have these, you know, we take it in smaller sections and we look at it over a several week or several month time period. And, and, and we're, we're wanting to study what it is that Paul's saying. And, and, and we want to be able to see all the details and, and digest and meditate on what, what's being written. And, and there's always, though, there's this advantage of, of seeing the big picture, the, the whole of the argument. That's always important. At the same time, we realize that the the richness of Scripture is often found in the details. But the disadvantage of studying it the way we do is that we can sometimes lose track of the flow of thought. We can lose sight of the forest because of the trees. And here, we need to see 
I want to show this to you. Paul wants his readers to know that what he's already hinted at back in, in uh, verse 23 of chapter 1, where you remember Paul spoke of the absolute necessity for them to continue in the faith, to persist in the faith. He wants them to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And it's where he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then what he does is he's been expanding since verse 24 on his role as a minister, as a servant of the gospel. The danger that he's hinting at here, the danger is made clear as we move through the chapter in the next couple of weeks, but namely, not persisting in faith, not being established and firm, but in fact, shifting from the gospel that you heard. And it's order, in order to prevent that from happening, that Paul draws our attention so carefully and so fully to his work as servant of the gospel. And so that's why he says, this is the context. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. A, a great deal is at stake. He wants the Christian believers at Colossae and elsewhere to know that he, that, that he wants them to understand God's ways with the gospel and how God works through servants of the gospel so that they will not shift from the gospel. And so this paragraph this morning, let's look at three things. First, he wants them to, uh, the, the work he wants them to understand. Secondly, the danger that it'll help them avoid. And thirdly, the joy that Paul has that it's already working. The description of the work begins here in verse 1. This great struggle, and I have it for you. The word there, struggle, is the same word. Um, it's it's agon. Uh, agonize is where we get it from. I've agonized. It's the same as, as verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, where he says, For this I toil, struggling. I'm toiling and struggling with all this, his energy that he powerfully works in me. And so, what's Paul talking about? What did he actually do that was such a struggle, that was such a toil? Well, it probably wasn't, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out how the Greek text works. What is the struggle? What is the toil? Well, there's two activities I think Paul uh, gives us that he struggled over. The first one's praying. And I would say if you doubt the toil and the struggle language could be a reference to something as simple as praying... Just turn over in your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 12. And listen to how Paul talks about it. He talks about Epaphras, or Epaphras. And he's the, uh, the pastor of the church of Colossae. Remember, Paul's never met these believers. But he knows their pastor. He knows who planted this church. And he says, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And then he says this, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured. 
in all the will of God. Epaphras is doing what Paul was doing. In 1 9, chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, I've never ceased praying for you. Part of the struggle that Paul wants him to know is his prayers for them. He told them what he was specifically praying for in chapter 1 that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And now he wants them to know this is the great struggle, the labor that he's undertaken. Prayer, this kind of praying is a struggle and it takes effort and it takes discipline. And Paul says, I want you to know about this. I want you to know the struggles happening. Now, secondly, what's the other one? I think the other place that he tells us about is toil, is struggle. Chapter 1, verse 28, looked at it last week. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. <laughs> Proclaiming Christ and warning every person and teaching every person. It's the very hard work that Paul's engaged in. It's the activity that brought on Paul's suffering. The sufferings that he said he rejoiced in for their sake. Everywhere. The proclamation of Christ is opposed with hostility, whether openly or covertly. But more than that, to, to work hard at persuasion and to work hard at urgent warning, at careful instruction, that's the work. And it was for them and for those at Laodicea and to all the others who haven't seen him face to face, for you and others like you, he says. Those whom Paul never met. Why would he work so hard? Why would he struggle so greatly? Well, in verse 2, it begins with a purpose statement. This is the purpose for it. He says, that, that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love, to reach all the riches a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. But Paul is saying, I, I'm, pro, I'm proclaiming Christ that no matter how much effort it takes, and I'm praying with all the energy that God gives me to see deep and profound maturity in your life. That the outcome would be this grasping of the treasure of the riches of Christ. And he talks about three things. He talks about encouraged hearts, talks about loving unity, talks about rich assurance. He, he wants their hearts to be encouraged. This means at the depth of their person, at the center of their personal life, at the center of your personal life. So Paul was struggling that you would know the comfort and the Courage that knowing Christ brings. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort or encouragement. Same word. Who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those 
who are in any affliction with the comfort which we have received ourselves are comforted by God. Ten times he's going to go on to use that. That we'd be encouraged, we'd be comforted. Now, now then he goes and talks about loving unity. He says it this way, that we'd be knit together in love. So Paul's struggle was that believers, believers in Colossae, believers all around that he'd never met, I think even Paul's mind, into the generations, he would have us in mind if he could have imagined us, is that we would know this powerful bond of love that knowing Christ brings. That the, the revelation of God and the and full assurance that's to be treasured cannot be fully known and comprehended by intellect alone. That's what he's saying. But Paul, he, he reveals it can't be known apart from love. Everything that he wants us to know, he wants us to know it can't be known apart from love. Can't be known apart from the community. In other words, the one in others and in Christ, those are inseparable. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we're noisemakers. We have nothing, we're nothing, we gain nothing. Ephesians chapter 3, 17 and 18, we cannot grasp the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love without the saints. Paul wants us to know Christ personally beyond what we are capable of knowing individually. We need each other to know all there is to know. One way to say it, when you know the truth in your head, and then you act it out in your life in, in love, then you come to this great confidence, this, this great assurance, because you, you're not only seeing, you're not only hearing Christianity intellectually, but you watch it operate, and it builds this confidence. And it's a confidence in the rich assurance. The rich assurance, the riches, the treasure, the riches of assurance to know God's glorious purpose for the nations of the world. There is this deep confidence of understanding that Christ brings. One, one way to translate it, one translation puts it this way. The full wealth of conviction that understanding brings. Paul was struggling that you believers would know that. Last week, chapter 1, verse 28, Paul described the purpose of his struggle, of his labor, in terms of its final goal, that, he, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now he wants us to know in his strenuous work to that end for you. And just in case you didn't get it. Just in case you didn't fully understand what all this was about, he tells us it is 
Christ. Now, I, I want you, before we move on to verse 3, I want you to realize that, that chapter 2, verse 2 of Colossians is absolutely vital to our understanding of the Christian life, our understanding of what it means to grow in maturity in Christ. See, this is radical. This is exactly not how we are inclined to think. Remember, Paul's writing uh, uh, against uh, the, the, the errors that are uh, coming into the church. It, it, these errors will, will become more developed and, and full-blown within the next 50 years that it will be known as Gnosticism. And the truth is Gnosticism is a heresy that has hung on in the church for 2,000 years in one form or another. Mark Sayers, who's an Australian uh, writer, writes some theology books. He, he wrote this book a couple of years ago called Disappearing Church from Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience. He, he says it this way. Listen to this. The challenge faced by the church in the West is not the rise of unbelief, but rather the rise of a belief that is detached from an idea of belonging. Truth is, if the, for all the good things, whatever the good things were of a year of isolation and quarantine and uh, uh, what do we call that? Uh, uh, shelter in place kind of a thing. Yes. There, it, it exacerbated some of the consequences. He goes on, he says, belief is still out there, but it's being negotiated in order to provide solace while maximizing individual freedom and choice. We want God, but we still want our own authority. A renegotiated Christianity emerges in which we may still believe, but the nature of our belonging radically changes. It's another legacy of the Gnostic sensibility of our culture. We buck and resist the institutional, creedal, restrictive, sacrificial elements of church life because ultimately we are driven by the desire to self-create. To self-create, one needs freedom. No responsibility, nothing mundane, no binding relationships or communal commitments or taking a weekend and helping a guy fix his mom's roof. We just want free space in which to indulge our fantasies of our own God-likeness. Such fantasies cannot be entertained in the institutional realities of creedal communities. Church families serve us well by reminding us that we are not God. And Gnostic believers are ultimately anti-institutional believers who see no purpose in the benefits that the church life of believers can bring. 
Here's what Paul's saying. Here's his answer to this Gnostic tendency in all of us. That the depth of understanding, the depth of our maturity is facilitated when believers' hearts are bound together in love. One commentator says it's so clear. F.F. Bruce. Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. It means that we just, it's not mere intellectual assent. When we are loved by other believers, we experience Christ through them. And, and then our, our knowledge and our understanding of Christ grows and is enhanced. If we love, there are full riches of complete understanding. It's the important message for a Christian life that's vibrant and growing. No intellectual process will lead to the full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it is accompanied by a love for Him and for Christians that knit us, the church, together in love. We cannot pursue that in isolation. I'll tell you, individualism is epidemic. It is rampant. And it is Gnostic. And Paul says, everything that I want you to know, in all the ways that God wants you to grow, in all the ways that God is maturing believers, it cannot take place apart from the body of Christ, from, from being knit together in love with other believers. Listen, if you're here this morning, or you're online this morning, and you're not in a Bible study with some other folks, a smaller group of people that know your name and you know theirs, or in a life group, or, or if you're not serving somewhere, you know, that, that, you know, if you don't show up, you know, so somebody's counting on you, somebody's dependent on you. If you're not connected, if you're not knit together, and listen, we don't have to do the knitting. God's doing the knitting, but we... But we must put ourselves in the place of being knit together. Listen, you go show up in somebody's living room for a, for a few life group meetings. At some point, you realize, I think we're being knit together. And here's how you know it. Because you leave and you think, that was kind of messy. Those people have problems. Whew. I'm sure glad we don't have those problems. Of course, you've left and they're talking about you like... And they don't even know how messed up they are. But we stick with it. We're knit together, these supernatural relationships that God puts together. We're craving it. We, we long for community. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm an introvert, all right? It's, it's not that I don't like people. I just don't want to be around them very much. 
At least that's what I think. But man, you spend three months sheltered in place, and I'll tell you what, I'm not as much of an introvert as I think. I can't do this on my own. I don't want to do this on my own. Never going to get through this. Here's the thing. Some of you, I know you, you sit here, and you think about this often when you think about it. And is this all there is? I thought life in Christ was something that was, that was vibrant. And yeah, I mean, I know there's going to be a little suffering. I've heard, been to church enough to know there's a little suffering. But I mean, I don't feel like I'm growing. And I would say, listen, here's the thing. I, you likely are not growing because you have tried to plant yourself all alone. You have walls that are keeping people out. And you cannot be bothered with the lives of other people. You don't want anybody to see what's going on in here, and you're not terribly interested in what's going on over there. And I would say, listen, you're, you're missing what God means to do with your life, and you need some relationships. You need some friendships. You need some brothers and some sisters in, in Christ that you begin to pray for and, and live sacrificially for and with and allow yourself the inconvenience of being knit together. And you know what you find? There is a treasure of riches that await you. There is a treasure of wisdom and knowledge awaiting you. You have full access to it. But the key, the key is not to read another book. The key is to spend time with some other people. Allowing the Spirit to knit you with them. Paul wants to know, listen, it's this astonishing claim. This great struggle I'm engaged in so that Christ will be known among you, even for those that I haven't seen face to face. And there's this specific purpose. If you look at it in verse 4, it's the danger that this work helps them avoid. He says, I say this so no one may delude you. I don't want you to be deceived by anyone. And the ESV translates it plausible arguments. You, you might have in your uh, your, your Bible, your version, uh, persuasive speech, and that's the danger. But Paul's already alluded to it back in chapter 1. And he wants to be clear as to why we should appreciate. He says, listen, here's the danger. Now let me tell you what it is to be a servant of the gospel. And now he says, I want you to know, I want you to appreciate this role of this gospel servant, namely Paul, because the very real danger we have is the danger of being deceived. Christ is the one on whom all things, including us, depend We depend on Christ for our existence, our reconciliation. The blood 
of his cross is the power to heal creation. If Christ is the hope of the world, then to be turned away from truth, this is a massively serious danger. What would it take to deceive us? Well, what do we need to be aware of that has the power to deceive? Here's what he says. Plausible arguments. Persuasive speech. It's the kind of thing we need to be reminded of. So no matter the issue, the specific issue that threatened the Colossians, we need to understand about ourselves, we're people who are deceived by persuasive speech, by plausible arguments. That's why they have infomercials at 11 o'clock at night. And on the one hand, this is intuitive, right? I mean, unpersuasive speech or unplausible arguments, they don't usually get us. Arguments that, that are unimpressive don't usually persuade us. Takes impressive speech, impressive arguments, persuasive, plausible, so it's this kind of speech we must be aware of. Now listen, persuasive speech, put plausible arguments, they'll sound like they're right, which makes them plausible and persuasive. And the more right it sounds, the more dangerous it is if it's not right. Now, this plausible arguments, persuasive speech, in and of itself it's neutral. It can be used to persuade you to the truth. It can be used to deceive you. The letter to the Colossians is an example of persuasive speech. But the point is this. Here's the point I want to make. It should not be admired simply for the quality of being persuasive. That quality can be deceptive as well as, as being something that can warn or instruct or teach the truth. What we need to recognize, what Paul's saying is that the true servant of the gospel who very, very, very often will seem unimpressive. Remember, Paul's the one that suffers and he's in prison. And in fact, a lot of those that will come and go, I can't believe you listened to Paul. You know he's in prison. I mean, have you ever seen Paul? He's not very impressive. Have you ever listened to Paul talk? Nothing dynamic. That's what they'd say. But Paul's saying, listen, I want you to know and I want you to appreciate the labors of Paul for you so that no one deceives you with persuasive speech. You need to know and appreciate the labors of those servants of the gospel who labor for you today as Paul did and not be deceived by persuasive speech. If you have a life group leader, they are laboring for you. Or a Sunday school teacher. Or a pastor or a Bible study leader. Or listen, here's the reality. Some of you have been called to this fellowship to labor. I remember I told, told a story the other day of my 
Mrs. Stubberfield, my 86-year-old fifth-grade Sunday school teacher. And I am telling you, there's nothing impressive about her. But man, that woman labored for the gospel. So you might say, wait a minute, are you telling me that that's it? That God's great purpose for the whole world, that the hope of the nations, the hope of the world, that rests on the labors of people like Paul, people like Mrs. Doublefield, people like you, people like me, and that it could be undone by persuasive speech or a plausible argument of others? Does the plan of God for his creation really hang on such a thin thread? Yes, it does. And that is why every advance of the gospel, every time we see faith in Christ amongst the nations or amongst our uh, congregation, every, every person that we see persisting in the faith, established and firm, not shifting from the hope of the God, every time it happens, everywhere it happens, we thank God. It is His work. He is doing it. The struggles of Paul, the toil, the, 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 the labor, they're all achieving their purpose because it's God's purpose. And so Paul, he's writing this letter and he's you're not full of anxiety or distress. You find in verse 5, he's full of joy. Though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, and I think it's really the spirit. I think there is a spiritual being there Paul sees in, in Christ, in the, in the Holy Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And it's a bond that Distance like Colossae to Rome does nothing to weaken. With Christ as our head, reconciled to him by his death, he says, I've heard the report, your, your good order, the firmness of your faith, life is put back into order. We'll look at more of that in the weeks to come, what it looks like the order of life in Christ. And Paul says it's something to be pleased about. It's something to give thanks for. It's something to have joy in, to, to rejoice in. The word firmness, it's the only time it's ever used. It's the word we get stereo from. Steroma. It means firmness or, or something that's solid. And when you apply it to sound, you get the idea of it being surrounding or enveloping. It's not something you hear out there. You find yourself in the center of it, and it's all around you. And this is what he's talking about, this stereo faith and ordered lives, a firmness of faith come from Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. 
And that's how our lives are meant to be ordered. It's how the universe is ordered. Beware of being deceived, yes. But rejoice in the spectacular work that God's doing. Yes, are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you, are you finding that your life is bumping into and stumbling upon the riches of the treasures of Christ. So that's what we're all about here. It's the only thing we're about. Maturing in Christ, knowing Him. A lifetime of knowing Him. And then an eternity of knowing Him. Where do you need to find yourself plugged in so that you are knit together in love with this body? If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. Help us to believe the truth that it is not just about reading a book or following a program or trying some strategy of self-improvement. That all those we find their sources really a, this Gnostic idea, this Gnostic heresy that is hung around for 2,000 years that somehow we can, we can buy it or intellectually attain to it. Father, Father we, we can't grow in you. We, we can't grow in the knowledge of your Son. We, we can't come to know and taste the treasure of the riches of his wisdom apart from finding ourselves being knit together in love. So, Father, I pray you'd do that in our life. I pray you'd, pray you'd weave us into, stitch us into the lives of others. Father, and grant us the, the love with which to love. And that, Father, we'd know the joy of what it is to be loved. And in that, the part of the mystery of Christ is that we grow in our capacity to comprehend you. So, Father, we ask this. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.